You're listening to the Physics Ed Podcast. For hundreds of ideas, free experiments and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. And now, here's your host, Ben Newsom. Hey, welcome again to another Physics Ed Podcast. Glad to have you again for another chat around science education. And this week, we're heading down to Deakin University, where Dr. Seamus Delaney has been working as a lecturer and researcher in this space. You see, for the past 15 years, he's worked as a classroom teacher, a head of science, a head of e-learning. He's a teacher, educator, and researcher in both Australia and Switzerland, and he's a committee member for the Chemistry Education Association. Plus, he co-founded the Early Careers Chemistry Network, which helps chemistry teachers early in their careers. One of the things that Seamus loves is incorporating augmented and virtual reality into chemistry education, and he's currently working with a number of educators right around the world to reposition chemistry as a sustainability science, which is an amazing research area and something he's very passionate about. So let's listen on to this chat. He's got a lot to share. This is the Physics Ed Podcast. We're all about science, ed tech and more. To see 100 fun free experiments you can do with your class, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. And click 100 free experiments. Thank you very much for joining me. It is uh, the first holidays of this COVID-19 thing. And how's it been with you and what you've been doing? Well, it hasn't been a holiday for us. The universities have still been open. So we've uh, been frantically getting all of our on-campus programs exclusively now online. Um, at Deakin, we're somewhat fortunate. Much of our science education program always had an online. So you could be an online student or an on-campus. So it wasn't too much work to change a lot of it, but a big part of our teaching was always doing the practical activities and helping the, the pre-service teachers, you know, really actually try them out and, you know, fail and, and tinker with, uh, so we've missed, we've missed that. We've really missed that sort of feeling in the lab. So that's what we're missing. We don't really capture that one-to-one in an online space. So yeah, but it's, it's been a busy time and, um, you know, with a kid at home trying to, it's how do you entertain a kid during the holidays when none of the holiday things are running? It's that's um that's a difficult thing. But with my kids, it's been a mixture of um some of the stuff that I get up to, but also uh, I'm going to be honest, Minecraft and YouTubers. And yeah, I'm one of those parents. And yes, we get them outside, we're walking the dogs. But yeah, it's been it's been a challenge for everyone. And uh, I mean, just thinking like, I mean, you working with with Deacon, I mean, trying to okay, yeah, you're not pivoting an entire program, but there's still a lot of effort in doing that. Um, I mean, just for now, I mean, what, what's the, what is exactly that you do exactly within Deacon, like, you know, title and all that sort of thing. What is it that you totally get up to? Sure. So I've been at Deacon for a few years now and I largely look after the secondary science pre-service teacher education program um, in the sense that we have, I would say, about a suite of, let's say, seven or eight subjects um that are secondary and then probably the same number that are primary and most of my time is in the secondary space we're we're a great team there's about four or five of us across biology physics psychology environmental science and so we really work well together and we get a lot of our units together and just try and design a cohesive program for either bachelor's or master's students who are coming through as a pre-service teacher. Um, it's quite challenging to make sure that they, for secondary, we benefit from the sense that they already feel like, you know, they were a science teacher and they've got a science background. 
But to be honest, I really love working with the primaries. Um, one of my other hats is coordinating uh, for Burwood campus, uh, Deakin's a multi-campus university, um, some, out, some uh, visits for, in schools with our primary um, pre-service teachers to go out and do some science, um, some short science lessons in schools. And that is a lot of fun because they, they often don't feel like they have ownership of the science or they don't refer to themselves as a scientist, as you would know. So that's a lot of fun working with those students. And I, they're often the ones that are most keen to really jump in and try things out. And yeah, that, that can be a lot of fun and a lot of failure, but um, that's part half the fun. I must say, um, I mean, I've been lucky enough to work the whole gamut from preschool to year 12 because of doing outreach as well. Um, and, you know, high school trained, et cetera. But vast majority of my work has been around primary and that say something about, it's like the kids, they haven't had the science bitten out of them yet. <laughs> I don't know how to say this in a, in a, in a particularly correct way, but they are still also so incredibly curious and, and not so worried about failure and what other people think. They just want to have a good shot at it. And it's, amazing watching the watching the kids do it and also watching the teachers just come up with some really cool stuff and like you said so they're going oh we're not scientists but in reality they really think like it and really dive right in and it's really cool to watch i think we do we do our best to um uh yeah i I always remember that first lesson we always have where we talk about they do walk in and they feel a bit anxious about it and then we say from day one you know this is about developing curiosity and wonder in you know your your students in the primary school and it's not about you know feeling like you have effective knowledge of it all and and so it's really just about making sure that that curiosity and wonder is able to develop and nurture inside these students and i think there's this that collective sigh of relief around the room it's like oh that's good there's not going to be a chemistry test at the end of this it's more (laughs) it's just like okay well i can do that you know that's why i got into you know um that's why i'm doing an education degree at university and, and i want to develop motivate students and engage them so i think that that's and once you get over that hurdle um that's for me that certainly helps from the secondary side of things they do come in a bit you know value heavy where they're thinking well you know i'm a chemistry educator i'm a physics educator and so we do we spend a lot of time working with those students to go well actually you know when you go out in school you're going to be teaching you seven to ten science you're going to be teaching subjects outside of your sort of comfort area. So a lot of time work convincing them to actually realize again that it is that curiosity and wonder, even in that seven to ten stage, it's that students are we want them to be completely open to do they want to study science in senior secondary or or if they don't, what level of science, what level of science inquiry do we want them walking out the door at the end of year 10? You know, if they're not thinking of doing science in year 11, year 12, what how do I want them thinking about science at the end of Sort of year 10 so that's sort of something we, we truly do focus on here at Deakin. Absolutely and I, I was just sort of thinking there just thinking of some of the best things I've seen around with um, almost inter-school things where you might have a grade 3 student and they're paired up with a grade 10 student from the high school down the road um, and you know it usually involves a lot of crosstalk between the schools and whatnot and but gee there's some awesome opportunities for young kids to teach older kids and vice versa because often you always think the older student knows more and they you know, usually invariably do but sometimes it can be flipped completely and it can be rather cool. So, so anyone listening in who teaches primary, your students can do cool stuff. <laughs> they totally can. And um, give, them a, give them a chance. And the, so I guess just sort of think about it, what happens at Deakin. I mean, you have a lot of people from an undergraduate level through masters and whatever uh, doing education. Um, 
I've got to ask yourself, I mean, how did you fall into, um, you know, the, you know, teaching pre-service teachers to teach science? Like, how did you, how did that come about? Oh gosh, it's a very long story. I, I'm, um, what's that movie with the Benjamin Button? I think I'm, I'm doing it. That <laughs> I um, I was a PhD student. Uh, I did my PhD in chemistry um, here in Australia, in, in, in Monash University. And um, as most PhD students do, they do you know just some lab demonstrations or tutoring, anything to just make a bit of money. And I was very lucky to become involved with a, a first year faculty of science subject. So it was a science subject for students who didn't have a science background so hadn't done the prerequisites sort of year 12 or they maybe they're a mature age student and they had to do this sort of you know really fundamental science subject first before they could enroll in later subjects and and the subject was called the design of science and it was um oh god it was so much fun you know it was in a computer lab room now but what we had was we had them standing on chairs and making whirly bird you know paper planes and dropping them and Oh, cool. Doing different wing legs, wing legs, and and all those things, and then and then doing you know putting in Excel and doing all the stats. But it was just that you know we had them looking up statistics about the Titanic and you know working out who died in first, second, third class, and thinking about disparities. And and the students just had so much fun. They were just like, I didn't realize I'd be doing this. And I, I always found, and so that stuck with me. And so I was getting toward the end of my PhD, and my very understanding. PhD supervisors, you know, knew that I loved doing this, so, you know, getting quite involved with this first year subject. And, but I thought, well, but why did they, why did they not do, you know, science and secondary? And why, why are they now a mature age student coming into a tertiary degree, but not having done much science before? So I thought, well, I'll go do a master's of teaching. I'll go be a science teacher. And, and um, my PhD student was, again, my supervisor was very understanding I did my master's um, of teaching as I was writing at my PhD. Um, I gave him the draft, my first draft of my PhD, just before I started the course. I gave him my second draft just after I finished the course. Um, very, I was very lucky. I, I landed in a very good school, um, a secondary school. And at the end of my first year of teaching, I finally graduated my PhD. So I, I was doing all that while becoming a teacher. And as I said, it was a very good school. Um, I quickly became the head of science and head of e-learning at that school. And, that, and I helped set up um, a group for chemistry teachers. So we were quite conscious of the fact that graduating teachers, you know, do need a bit more support. And so we thought, well, what better way to do that than ourselves? So we set up a, a group called the Early Careers Chemistry Network. Um, it was supported by the Chemistry Education Association here in Victoria. And we basically ran professional learning for, um, for chemistry graduating teachers. So around either online stuff or remote learning or ICT, uh, or even just, you know, designing your own assessments and pracs. And so doing that for a few years and, and being head of science at a big school here in Victoria sort of got me the attention, the attention of, my old lecturers. And so when my chemistry education lecturer retired, he said, well, why don't you be me? You know, and I was like, are you kidding? And I said, yeah, <laughs> of course. So um, I made the switch. Uh, so I made the switch to university, um, doing secondary education there. And that was all going fine until um, 
my family moved to Switzerland. Um, my wife's also in the university sector. Um, she's a associate professor and she was offered a job um, in Switzerland, the, the city of pharmacy uh, in Basel. So our son was quite young. So we, um, we packed up and we went there. And after a few months, I got a job there as a researcher working with um, the Center for Science Education, Science and Teacher Education there. And there I became a pre-service teacher educator for early childhood and primary. Um, that was really different. And that was in German, by the way. I learned German very quickly and- um, Could you still teach in German? Uh, I could still teach in German, not, not well, um, but uh, the, we did, um, so in Basel, we, in the Fachhochschule in Norwegian we had the um, early childhoods. So th it's a little bit different there. They, they, they have the early childhood. You're trained to do uh, two years of kindergarten or the first two years of primary. And then primary, you could be three to, three to six. So that we worked with the early childhood. Um, and that was, gosh, that, I mean, in German, but it was still so much fun. They had a, a book called uh, Experimenten mit Anten, and it was this ant. Um, this ant that had all these inquiry experiments and oh, cool. amazing pictures of the ant, you know, carrying a candle and showing it was just, you know, all the experiments that they would do. And I just found that they were doing so much inquiry at such an early age. It was just amazing. And so anyway, this really got me involved. I'd never really done any early childhood or primary before this stage. So hence the Benjamin Button reference, I was going backwards. But um, when, I, when we knew we were coming back to Australia, you know, I... Deacon were looking for someone who was both primary and secondary. So I was very well placed for that. And now back at Deacon and now back, thankfully, you know, back with my core love, which has always been chemistry. Um, chemistry education is my, you know, my, my real passion for, for education. I, I'm, I'm back involved with the Chemistry Education Association where at the moment trying to come up with ways that we can support chemistry teachers in this remote learning space. and and then I was very lucky to meet, um, I guess, my partner in crime, Madeline Schultz, who was also new to Deakin at the time. And she's in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences. She's definitely chemistry, um, but her passion as well as chemistry education. So between the two of us, we set up an interdisciplinary group called um, Elements of Sustainable Chemistry. And our website's um, eschemistry.org. And we, uh, we, what we're really trying to do with that interdisciplinary group is work with researchers and work with schools and educators to, you know, really change what people think about uh, chemistry in terms of sustainable development. And so that's really something we've been pushing very hard this last probably year and a half. Feels like a, um, quite a path, <laughs> I gotta say. It's, it's kind of funny how you ask someone, someone that because it's, it's, it's often we talk about our practice, um, what, what we're doing today, but a lot of what you've been doing in the background really brings out what, you know, people really love and like, I was just sort of noting clearly experimental design is a thing that just kept on popping up throughout that as well as, you know, you love chemistry and, you know, the trip off to um, Germany, is, you know, unexpected twist, but it certainly gave a lot of skills. Um, before I go into the experimental design stuff, because I mean, that's something sure. I, I personally love. Um, well done. I mean, one of the things that I've been asked quite a few times in conferences is um, how did you, you know, sort of physics, et cetera. And all of it was, all of it was, was just take the next step. What's the next step? what's the next step and honestly i don't think i've taken many steps right now <laughs> so it's kind of like you just don't know where you're gonna go so now well done that's really cool and uh oh, i mean i think i think i should say is that i've been very fortunate to be able to work with just some truly amazing people along the way and i think 
so many of those experiences that I just described were only possible because, you know, the, the chance encounters and the collaborators who are keen to explore things. I mean, um, you know, the, even this situation in Switzerland, you know, oh, you, you can imagine someone, someone, someone turning up, um, someone turning up in your office who's written you a random email, who speaks no German at the time, um, you know, sort of going and then taking a chance and you go, well, you know, I've got this small project. Do you want to get involved? And we started with that. We were writing, um, it started with writing essentially NAPLAN questions for Switzerland. Uh, and they were, they, were, they were putting their own national um, assessment program together. And so you can imagine this is not something someone who has an inquiry and experimental design background was <laughs> really interested in, but uh, we, we wrote all the, ke the chemistry, the physics, the general science questions. But what, what um, I should say his name, Professor Peter Laboud was the person, the fantastic person who, who got me involved. And what he really pushed hard um, with the government was, no, we don't want them just doing questions. We want them to do a practical activity first. Yeah, so what we, what we did was, is that we, we designed some activities that each school could do. And we, we wrote the instructions, we wrote the teacher resources, we wrote what the students had to do. And we wrote it very inquiry focused. So we didn't just, it wasn't just question answer. It was, you know, what do you think is gonna do? How are you gonna measure this? How are you gonna control this? And they had to do the experiments first. And then there was the NAPLAN type questions. And so that the emphasis is really, really much on getting the schools to really understand that, you know, it was through experimentation that you can really develop your knowledge around these areas. And so we were really thankful um, that the schools really took that on board and, and it's still part of their, their program today. Absolutely. And my apologies with uh, the Germany, because it was Switzerland, I should have been listening properly. But the, um, but the thing about the experimental design, I mean, that is a, that is a, not a beast, it's just fun. When you get into it and start peeling back the layers and you teach kids about you know, how to really look deeply at their design and what are you messing up this time? They get, they really get it, they really do. And so, I mean, actually, I'm gonna throw you just, I mean, no preparation whatsoever, so yeah, I'm gonna put, put you on the spot, but the, um, I mean, if you had, let's just go, let's go middle of the range, just say a grade seven kid. So, you know, overseas, you know, middle school type um, grade. Uh, and you've got some kids in front of you, they're clearly interested, they're about, you know, about they've past their first three months of thou shalt not burn yourself and burn down this lab and they're, they're, they're starting to do some cool stuff and you want to bring in some experimental design i mean there have to be a couple of go-to experiments that you off the top of your head you go you know what if i just do this no matter who they are no matter what their background is they're going to love it and they're going to get right into it and it's going to be really hard to peel it off them <laughs> so i just love to know what you know i want to dive into your brain a little bit i mean what sort of experimental design things that could people could set up even without too fancy equipment just things hanging around that could get kids involved in the experimental design, the real scientific method really well and grab their attention. Um, yeah, well, it's a big one, isn't it? It I is, think isn't it? <laughs> there's sort of, I guess it's, there's so many things to take into consideration. Like, is it something that you want to go for one lesson or one week or, you know, so those things in mind. Um, but, you know, I would probably just answer with, some examples that I won't use one of mine, uh, a colleague of mine, um, Kieran Lim and Peter White and um, some other great names here at, at Deakin. They were part of a program called Acephal Schools. You can still find all the resources online um, for that. And they, Kieran would, Kieran would always demonstrate this um, inquiry activity. And again, it was designed for sort of, you know, five to eight, so it works well. And it was um, bungee cord design. 
Okay. Well, you've heard this one before. So it was around, um, you know, we're going to drop Barbie or we're going to drop, you know, you know, a, a figure um, off the bench and we don't want it to go to splat on the floor. Um, so we've got these, and he would just have these boxes of different cords, you know, um, you know, elastic, not elastic, um, you know, all sorts of things and go, well, you know, you want this, how can we, um, what sort of things do we need to take into consideration in the design of this bungee cord? Like we want this person who is stupid and I've never done it, but stupid enough to sort of jump off a platform and fall down to the ground, but not, you know, plonk yeah. you know, kill themselves on the ground. But, but also we don't want to rip their neck, neck open when they do, when the cord gets to the end of its length. So, you know, all these sort of things. And so, you know, that was a tough one for students. Students would really have to, um, you know, figure that out. That, that could be one that could be 15 minutes. It could, go, it could go quite long. One that we used to do back at my school, and I guess it, it is so old. I mean, my, one of my, pre, one of my uh, educators, when I was my pre-service teacher, he did this and he told me that he'd been doing it for 30 years. So this is a really old one. But just, I still love it. And nowadays it's got a nice ICT feel to it. That, you know, egg parachutes. I can't oh, get yeah. past it. I mean, I love it. Um, Nowadays, we get them to film it. We get them to, you know, work out all their energies, work out their velocities using, um, you know, stop motion cameras. And it's, it's the communication of it, um, having to really not just to even just design, experiment and think about inquiry and, and, you know, or tinker with it. Just communicating us as well. I mean, uh, communicating, communicating your results to both a lay audience, um, your peers, to a scientific audience, you know, all the challenges that are different there. Um, communication for me is really one of those key focuses around inquiry as well. So having whatever the experiment is, how you communicate that to those three different audiences, uh, lay your peers and, and a scientific audience that poses its own challenges that students have to overcome. I love it because they, both of those involve a context. I mean, the kids can totally pitch themselves at the bungee jumping. Like if, they, if they're never going to yeah. do it, they at least know what it's about. And that's really cool. And I was just sitting there thinking, because I'm just one of those people going, how would I make that even weird? Like if I put chalk on the Barbie's hand, can they high five something without <laughs> crunching on the ground? Or you know what I mean? Like do, something that sort of says they touched it, but they didn't die. Um, and the, the egg drop challenge, and that's a classic one. I mean, I, I used to mess around with this and I was probably maybe a bit brutal now looking back at the back in the day, but we do the initial drop and that'd be fun. And then I go, right, we're going to try and work out a ranking system. And one of the st uh, students said, well, what if we weigh it? Okay, well, okay, right, we'll do some weighing. And we decided to create this um, you know, matrix, this rubric, mm -hmm. so to speak of, well, yeah, it's not just about the egg is the payload, and you know sometimes you have, with egg vapor allergies you got to use water balloons. But the um, it would be right. So you survived the three-story fall, but you weighed way more, so your payload was too much, and you you overspent your dollars worth. Um, and you can really get quite nasty with it. <laughs> and the thing is, you're not the one doing it. The students are doing it to themselves, and it's funny. <laughs> and um, but that means they're right, they're right into the actual context of the whole point of it because a lot of the time you see these experiments, and it's kind of like okay, I've got to get this out of the textbook and somehow give it relevance. And the kids are just looking at you half blankly because there's no, it's not relevant to them. And so I love that both of those um, things, I mean, the egg drop challenge I mean, has direct um, comparison, not just to car crashes and things, but you know, the usual Mars lander or whatever yeah. it is. It's cool. Kids get it. I mean, kids like destruction. <laughs> I did. Um, and it's interesting. I, I, I love that. I mean, so, I, I mean. 
I mean, you make a good point about the context as well. I mean, I, we've, I mean, talk, speaking of failures, I mean, one thing we sort of got wrong when we sort of tried to have an open inquiry is we had this idea that we just put lots of stuff on a trolley and we'd say, right. And so, you know, it's the classic open inquiry failure where the teacher sort of goes, if I let the students do anything, then they will come up with something that they want to do, but it just never works. And so they, they would, we, we would put these trolleys out of stuff and you, know, you can literally use anything off the trolley to come up with an experiment. Hmm. And they would go, no, no, what do you want me to do? And it's, it, so I think that context as well is, is really an important one. I, I think we shouldn't be too fearful about, you can still have open inquiry, but it's the context is there. If, there's, if you help the students devise a problem that's worth investigating, I think that's half the, half the challenge. Sometimes. Well, you know what? I'm going to throw in a weird sort of version of this. I'm sitting here in my kitchen because I've got no choice. I normally it's in our recording studio at work, but I'm at my kitchen. That's why you're hearing the dog's bark. Um, maybe it is. I'm not too sure if it's coming through the microphone, but um, all through Facebook and social media, you know, obviously this thing with COVID-19, people are stuck at home and needing to come up with things to do. And all of a sudden people are actually looking at their pantry going, what can I make with this stuff? And I don't know about your friends. I mean, maybe it's just my friends, apart from the, the weird stuff that friends do. They've been posting all these, they, you know, they, you know, they've got their cafe effectively going. They're, they're showing pictures of their stuff, like, you know, the Instagrams of food, but they're saying, this is what I made out of random stuff. And I thought you guys would never have done that before. No one would have. And now they're actually teaching themselves to genuinely cook because there's something to do. I mean, obviously, obviously they're actually quite busy, but I know um, it doesn't sound like a science thing, but the reality is that cooking is still procedural and it still requires you to experiment and stuff around. And they are, they're effectively self-teaching themselves through trial and error to become pretty good cooks. At least, at least it looks on picture anyway. <laughs> Maybe they've got too much salt in it or something, but it's, it's, a, it's a thing, a context does matter and a reason to do the thing matters because if there's no reason they won't touch the trolley or the stuff that you just suggested if there's no context mm. why would you care um once you've got the story in a you know a game that matters all of a sudden your class listens and i reckon that's good fun mm. yeah it's um so like you've got a um you know you've got your undergraduate students whatnot but you do outreach with deacon into schools i mean tell us a bit about a bit i mean what people get to do what you've seen i'd love to hear a bit more about that yeah, so this is really a, um, a great sort of interest that we're very lucky to kick off. We were very fortunate to um, get a bit of money from the Australian National Commission for UNESCO, so essentially UNESCO in Australia, to celebrate the International Year of the Periodic Table, um, which was last year. And so it, it kicked off with essentially... We wanted to have a program that highlighted not just the elements, obviously, because hence the focus of the international year, but help students perhaps connect the story of sustainable development with chemistry. Now, again, as someone with a chemistry background, I'm aware that that's not often the connection that students make. Mm. Um, you know, you ask a student, well, what, what's chemistry for? And they say explosions and things like that. But they, 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 you, you don't inevitably hear you know, oh, well, it's about saving the environment. You know, a, a student is much more likely to connect that with, say, environmental science or biology. So, so we thought, well, no, many of the great ways that, you know, sustainable development is being addressed is through chemical processes. And, and we would always have the line, you know, it was, um, you know, today's, uh, you know, yesterday's solutions are today's problems. It's that idea that many of the advances that we had in the 19th and 20th century were chemical ones. Mm. Um, and, but they've led to today's problems. And so 
we said, well, let's have that. Let's make it about the elements. We're going to have outreach. We're going to have engagement. We're going to have fun, you know, short, brief, five, 10, 15 minute activities that students can do, but there'll be the context. There'll be, as they're doing it, we'll have some really amazing, engaging um, undergraduate students, volunteers come with us and they'll use this as an opportunity to sort of tell the story behind the scenes. So I'll give one example, um, aluminium. You know, aluminium is one that has a very big Australian context where, you know, aluminium is um, certainly not an endangered element. And I'll, maybe I'll talk about endangered elements later, but um, it's an element that we use massive amounts of um, throughout many of our uh, industry and society. And it's a very energy intensive one. And again, you can t if, if you're doing this senior students you can talk about the reasons why it's energy intensive but it's enough to say that you have to put a lot of electricity in to um, aluminium ore to get pure aluminium out um, hence the whole heroic reaction and so you know we're talking about something in victoria it's about um 10 10 of all of the electrical energy that's generated in victoria is used in just one place um, the, uh, the alumina smelter in um, Portland on the coast of um, in Western Victoria. About globally, it's about 5%. So 5% of all energy made in the world, um, you know, all those, those um, coal, nuclear, to make aluminium. So, you know, is that, is that a right thing to do? Is that, should we be using that much energy for this one thing, you know? And should we be recycling aluminium? Recycling would use one twentieth of the electrical energy to you know, recuperate the aluminium. So we, we devised experiments to sort of show them um, what you could do. So we had two, we, had, we made um, a metal air battery. So we had a battery that you could make again at home. You could make a battery with a piece of um, aluminium foil, um, a piece of paper soaked in some salt solution, and uh, a few wires, maybe a bit of charcoal if you have, but Madeline assures me you can do it without the charcoal. Um, a few wires and that's it, and a light bulb, and there you go. You could, you could make um, electrical energy just, just from those things. So that was a great way of going, student could go, huh, you know, I could, I've got a few little things here just out of, my, out of my cabinet that I'm generating electricity. And no batteries, well, you talk about it, where the, where the energy coming from. And then of course, the other way, we always ended with an explosion. We would do the thermite reaction. Now, um, I know you've probably done the thermite reaction many times and, and students love seeing the thermite reaction. It's, it's a big explosion and a lot of schools don't do it anymore. So they were very happy that we came out and did it for them. Mm. But, you know, we, we gave the context. We talked about where's that, all that energy coming from? You know, you know, the, the, you, know you can release all that, all that energy from aluminium by reacting with iron oxide. So, you know, we, we, we always try to contextualize what we were doing. And so a big, uh, we call the program, we still go around and obviously not right now, but we still go around and do the outreach program. It's called the periodic table of sustainable elements. So we talk about, we would talk about, you know, 10, 15 elements across the different activities. Many of them, we, we talk about the fact that many of these elements are really running out. So we would, we would talk about zinc. So when they're playing with zinc and they're, um, you know, we would coat uh, coins. We would um, take, I bought, I bought on eBay um, 1,000 one cent coins. Um, oh. And I, 
I absolutely assure you it did not cost me $10. It cost me considerably more than $10. But we would take one cent uh, coins. They had to be one cent because they were, they're copper coins. You know, um, I'm sure you remember them, Ben. That's but why, we would take those coins. And we, <laughs> why they're hard to get. And so we would coat them um, in a solution of sodium zincate to turn the coin silver. And so we would put a really, really fine layer of zinc on the coins. And students would be amazed by that. But then we'd stick the coin in a blowtorch and it would turn gold. You know, so we would have a, a bronze, a silver and a gold coin. And students were just like, what is it? You know, what are these people doing? But, you know, we, we could talk about, you know, you know, just a simple formation of an alloy and coating zinc on a coin and all that's galvanized steel. And that's the roof that, you know, is currently above our heads. And so... You know, we have those conversations about zinc is just through so many parts of our lives we don't realise, but that's also a problem. You know, we, we, we could really realistically run out of zinc in the next 30, 40 years, and what do we do then? So we would have those. We would always try and have lots of experiments. Uh, we would go out, we'd run probably, you know, in a nine-minute program, we'd run have the kids going around different tables doing about, you know, 50, 60 minutes worth of different activities. But at the same time, we'd always try and have a bit of an intro and outro and some demonstrations that maybe got that story about sustainable development across a bit better and how it relates to chemistry. No, it makes so much sense to actually, you know, um, give that context. I mean, I was just think, sitting there thinking about the experiments you can do with coins. In fact, there's a, um, I can never remember the name of the author. It probably popped up my brain real fast. Um, it, the guy who writes Mad Science, and these are generally, I think part of the title is experiments you can do at home but still shouldn't probably do. Like it's, it's, it's honestly, you actually shouldn't touch, touch it, but you can, it's, it's a great read. But the, um, there are so many things you can do from a metallurgy point of view. They often get missed because a lot of the um, experiments are here's your kitchen chemistry or here's your liquidy-based stuff. And metallurgy has some interesting stuff going on. Um, the, I mean, I was just thinking there, like even with the coins, I've seen um, one of the experiments in one of those books. It'll, 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 the author's name will come to me soon. The brain's just not working. But the, um, where you could have multiple coins, and we're talking like, you know, so you have a thousand, we're, we're dealing with a lot of coins, and two different types. So you've got two different metals and apple cores. You're coring an apple and chopping it up in little, little discs, so to speak. And you line them up, line them up, line them up in these mm -hmm. cells, and you can charge an iPhone. I think it was an iPhone four at the time, <laughs> or something like that. But that's a lot of juice, yeah. and it's pretty impressive to do. It's probably something you've got to be careful of, considering what it might do. But the um, the point is that you can do cool stuff with seemingly simple objects like a coin. That's awesome. Hey, look, thank you very much. I know you've got. Oh, um, I, I love I love electric. No, I, I would sit there. I, mean, I love electrochemistry. I think. If there's one thing that students could and teachers could really be encouraged to do is, you know, just look at that whole history, but even the current situation of electrochemistry, it's just a, it's a beautiful area to, to have students in, um, looking at, at primary, secondary, you name it. Oh, absolutely. And I just remember his name too, uh, Theodore Gray. So uh, these, this, is the, this is your don't do a home chat. So we're having that nice chat now. Check out Mad Science by Theodore Gray. There's some wickedly cool experiments in there that 100% you shouldn't be doing. And even if you have got a background where you could do it, maybe consider maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> but the book is very well done um, and beautifully illustrated and photo photographed. And I really want to read tangent here. But the re reason is that he's clearly a metallurgist. Like you can see, he's a chemistry, electrochemist by nature. You can see it. Um, I think he writes for PopSci and a few other places. But um, brilliant book. But the whole idea is that, yes, you can do some cool stuff with some um, you know, simple, simple objects. So, um, hey, 
look, thank you very much for popping on in. I know we could probably chat for hours about this sort of stuff, but I mean, you have been cooped up, cooped up in a house <laughs> for a long time. doing Going all crazy, things, yeah. Going crazy like all of us. Um, but um, look, undoubtedly, there's some people who'd love to get in touch with you or find out uh, what you've been up, getting up to or getting up to soon. Uh, how could they get in touch? Uh, well, the probably easiest way is we have all our contact details. So our website for the, the group is um, ES Chemistry. I think if you um, just search for elements of sustainable chemistry, I think we, we're we slowly getting higher up on the list of Google. Thank you, Google. I think we're near the top now. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you can find all our details. We put all, all the, um, the resources that we did for all of our outreach activities, we put them all online. You know, we, we want the teachers to do them. Um, you, we can't get out to each school, so we, we put all the activities up and... Uh, you you can find them all there and of course we're more than keen to we're, we're coming up with new ones for this year and and this is a space that we're going to keep working on so yeah come come have a look and see what we've, we've got up there absolutely and like always i'll put that information into the show notes uh so wherever podcast catch you listening to this on it'll just have a little look on that or alternatively jump on the physical website and you'll find this episode and click on the links and go for it because i mean this, this content's great and worth your time so um look thanks very much again and um all the best uh would you know to all the deacon crew um you know you, you do a fantastic job and having the um getting out there and amongst the students and in this case um virtually but I mean, we'll be out there again. Um, all of us will be. And uh, I know that they're going to get a lot out of it. Um, we will. Yeah, exactly. Oh, have thank you for your, thank you for your time as well, Ben. No, thanks very much. Uh, it was great to have a chat. Great. Well, thanks. We hope you've been enjoying the Physics Ed podcast. We love making science make sense. Why don't you book us for a science show or workshop in your school? If you're outside of Australia, you can connect with us via a virtual excursion. See our website for more. Well, there we go. We just heard from Dr. Seamus Delaney, who can really tell loves his science education, really gets into it, and he's making a massive impact. Now, you can follow him on Twitter. Check out at DelaneySW, so at D-E-L-A-N-E-Y-S-W, plus you can visit the Elements of Sustainable Chemistry website at eschemistry.org, so eschemistry.org. And as usual, we'll put all the links in the show notes so you can check those out later. Hey, that's enough from this particular episode, but we have far more episodes coming up through the years. So I hope you have a fantastic time no matter what you're getting up to, and I'll certainly catch you another time. You've been listening to another Physics Ed podcast. We're excited about science. Subscribe to us on iTunes to download the next episode as soon as it's released. And don't forget, for hundreds of ideas, free experiments, our new Be Amazing book and more go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. AEON.net.au.